0: Thank you, Babs. Well, that was the cutest baptism ever. Did you see young Weed as he stood here and they were praying for him and he heard one click of the camera and went, did you guys see that? It was the best. Please, could that please be the the bulletin next week? Uh, We are uh, are looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem um, from Matthew 21. And I want to begin this morning... Where our passage ends. I don't know if you caught that, but at the end of the passage in verse 10, it says, The crowd was stirred, and they asked themselves, Who is this? Who is this? This is a familiar question throughout the Gospels. And maybe you'll recognize some of the places where this has been asked before. In Mark chapter 4, we see Jesus in a boat with his disciples, and there's a life threatening storm that, that comes up out of nowhere. And the disciples are afraid for their lives. They, they wake Jesus up who's sleeping in the boat in the middle of this storm. And it says immediately he wakes up. He rebukes the wind and he says to the waves, quiet, be still. And it was completely calm. Do you know what the disciples said? Who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? Skip ahead. Luke chapter 5. Four friends bring a paralyzed man to Jesus, but they couldn't get to him because of the crowd. So they made an opening in the roof in the home of which Jesus was teaching. They lowered the man to his feet and Jesus, seeing their faith, looks at the man and he looks right past his paralyzed legs into his heart and says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees standing by, they hear this. You know what they say? Who is this who speaks such blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Two chapters later in Luke 7, a woman with a bad reputation. Everybody knew who she was, an immoral, sinful woman. She comes into the house where Jesus was hanging out with some Pharisees. And uh, she breaks a bottle of perfume and pours it on Jesus. She sits at his feet weeping. She says she wet his feet with her tears and dried his feet with her hair. She worships him. Jesus receives it. And then he forgives her sins. He says, your sins are forgiven. And the people there, in the same way as Luke 5, they say, Who is this who even forgives sins? Luke chapter 9. Jesus has sent his disciples out. He's given them authority over the evil spirits of the spiritual realm. He also gave them power to heal, to drive out sickness and disease. And the disciples go out and they're proclaiming the coming of the kingdom and they're healing people. And word gets back to Herod. You know what he says? He says, I beheaded John the Baptist. Who is this? And then here in Matthew 21, the crowd is stirred. Who is this? And what's interesting about that question, every time that you see it asked, what precedes it is Jesus speaking and acting as if he is God himself. And it prompts the people to say, who is this? See, This is the question that the gospel writers set out to answer. You know, take it a step further. This is the question that the whole counsel of God's word sets out to answer. Who is this? Did you know he is the focal point of all scripture? The Old Testament tells us that he's coming. The gospels tell us that he's here. The epistles spell out the implications of his life, death, and resurrection. And the book of Revelation says he's coming back. Who is this? The Bible, the whole Bible, Jesus is the focal point. But you know what else? I would suggest to us this morning that this is also the central question of every human heart. Who is this? See, there's not one human being uh, that has lived, that has not at some point asked the question, does God exist? And if he does, what is he like? And consequently, what does that have to do with me? Here in Matthew 21, we're going to see all three answers to those questions. Does God exist? What is he like? And what does that have to do with me? We're going to see the nature of our king. We're going to see the character of our king. And we are going to see the implications of his kingdom in my life. What is it going to cost me? What is the cost of his kingship? Let's take a look at Matthew 21, starting Now, let me set the scene here. Jesus is coming into town, into Jerusalem. It's uh, the Feast of Passover, which meant lots of people were traveling to Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem was a city that was normally a population of about one hundred to 200,000. And during Passover, the population would swell to nearly 2.5 million people. I mean, this was like the Olympics coming to your city. It was huge. And Jesus stops recognizing that we got a big crowd in Jerusalem and he stops and he sends two of his disciples to run an errand for him because he says, I'm about to make an entrance. I want people to know that I'm here. Now, does this sound like the Jesus that we've been following in the gospels? It does not. Like, look at me drawing attention to himself. This is, this is different than how he normally behaves and acts. I mean, we've caught glimpses of Jesus' true identity. You know, where, where we kind of, his divinity almost spills out. But we see just as many instances of Jesus almost wanting to keep the lid on it, to conceal it. It's why in John chapter two, when, when uh, Mary comes to him, when there's a shortage of wine at this wedding, she looks at the servants and she tells Jesus, or he says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And he says to her, do you remember? He goes, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. It's not time yet. In Mark chapter one, he heals the leper and he tells him, don't tell anybody who did this. At certain times, his disciples, they they tell him, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. They rightly identify his true nature. And he says, shh, don't tell. See, it wasn't time yet. His hour had not come. There's a lot of reasons that Jesus almost wanted to conceal this. But for our purposes today, the main reason is, is that as soon as, as Jesus went public with his identity, uh, it would lead to tremendous political and religious resistance. In fact, in John chapter 11, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it's like the straw that broke the camel's back. The religious leaders uh, call everybody together and they say, we've got to stop this. If we let him continue like this, Rome will come in and they'll take away our temple and our power. He must be put to death. What we see here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 21 is the mask's about to come off. Jesus is about to let everyone know who he really is. His hour has come. Uh, When I was living in Texas, that particular Easter, I decided to come home and surprise my parents. my, My whole life, I had lived about 20 minutes from home. Now I was over 20 hours from home and I thought it would be fun to surprise them. So I hopped in the car, I made the trek across the country I pull up to my front door and I was disguised, okay? I had a, a wig on, a hat, glasses, false teeth. I was a young life leader. I had all this stuff in my trunk. And uh, <laughs> I bought this uh, maintenance shirt from Goodwill. And I go knock on the door. My mom answers, she has no clue. <laughs> you know, she's not expecting to see me. And I tell her, you know, that I'm, I've come on some hard times. I'm looking for work. Um, is there anything I could do around the house? You know, maybe work in the yard. And my sweet mom, you know, she was trying to be so polite as she rejected this poor man uh, who'd who'd come on hard times. And uh, as she's talking, I took off my glasses and listened. She double took. Like, I think I know him, but she couldn't quite put her finger on it. And then I took out the teeth. I took off the wig and her jaw dropped and all of her joys were fulfilled because her perfect son had come home. (laughs) Here in Matthew 21. Jesus is about to take off the mask. The perfect son had come home to come and take his rightful place as the king. Okay, so what does Jesus do? He tells two disciples, he says, I want you to go get me a donkey. There's gonna be a donkey in town, Uh, but not just any donkey. I want you to go get me. um, I want you to go get me a baby donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. But he says, Not just any baby donkey. I want you to go get me a stinky, stanky, linky, lanky, honky, tonky, winky, wonky donkey. Does anybody know that children's story? Okay. Sorry, that went over just about as well at 830. I I asked Libby, my daughter, should I tell this joke? And she said, too risky. Don't, don't do that. (laughs) Two for two. I did it anyway. Okay. What Jesus actually said is go get a donkey. And this is in Luke's account. He says, go get a donkey that nobody has ever ridden. A baby donkey that no one has ever ridden. Now, why is that significant? Because you can't ride an unbroken baby donkey. An untrained colt. You can't do it. If you sit on that donkey's back, it's going to throw you to the ground. But for some reason, when Jesus sits on its back, it leads him exactly where he wants to go. Why? Because the one who sits on his back is the same one that rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Shh. And it listened. See, because all of creation bends to the will of its master. And that's precisely what Jesus is. And as he rides into town that day on a donkey, the whole scene screams, I am the king over all creation. And one day, one day, everything will bend to my will. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. Lion will lay down with lamb. And sin will be no more. I am the king of all creation. But it's not just what Jesus rides in on. It's what the people say too. Listen to what they say here. And this is in verse 9. They say, The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed They shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, that word Hosanna, it just meant pray, save us. Please save us. Son of David. Now, Jesus had a lot of titles, teacher, Lord, master. But perhaps there was no title that more clearly pointed to his true nature than son of David. We could take an entire sermon series to unpack the origins and implications of this particular title, but let me just touch on it this morning. Son of David, one day there was coming a king. He would come from the line of David and he would sit upon a throne and his reign would never end. Isaiah 6, 9, it says this. It says the entire government will be upon his shoulders and we shall call him. Listen to these titles. Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. See, now those are pretty prestigious titles, but then listen to these two. Almighty God, Everlasting Father. Make no mistake. When they cried out, Hosanna, Son of David, what they were saying is, God himself has come to visit his people. It was so clear, it was such an offense to the religious leaders that day that in Luke's account, they say to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? Tell them to be quiet. Who knows what Jesus said? If they are silent, the rocks will cry out. Why? Because I am, I am the king. See, modern Western so-called Christianity would love to rob Jesus of his divinity. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will not let you do it. In fact, it's worth noting, uh, Matthew, his book is 28 chapters. Eight of them are dedicated to the last seven days of his life. In John's gospel, the last 50% of his book, the last half of Jesus, the last seven days of Jesus' life. Why? Because that is where Jesus declares, I'm the king. No question. The cat is out of the bag. The mask is off. I am God. Deal with it. Now, that's his nature. He is our God. He is our king. But we also see what his character is. Let's take a look. In verse 5, it says this. This is from the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Your king is coming to you, gentle. Is this what you expect to hear when you hear king? He's not a king who's going to come on a war horse or a steed. He's coming to you on a donkey, a humble, lowly animal. See, that that title king, you know, we think strength, power, authority. And Jesus is those things, but he's also gentle, meek, lowly. He's the unexpected king. He is the king, but he's not the king that you would expect. Mark 10, 45 puts it this way. Even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. In John 13, in this same uh, period of time, these last seven days of his life, we see Jesus saying this. he, he, He knew that all authority had been given to him that he had come from the Father, that he was returning to the Father. And so, verse three says, and so he got up, he took off his outer garment, he filled up a basin with water, got down on his hands and knees, and he washed his disciples' feet. How much authority did Jesus have? All of it. He was the king. What did he do with his authority? He got down and he served. He came gentle. He is the king, but he is the unexpected king. And the disciples, they just kept missing it. They didn't see it coming. In John 14, right after he washes their feet, he famously says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in verse 8, Philip responds to that. And this is, you know, my paraphrase, but Philip essentially says, Jesus, you know, you've been talking about God, the Father. If we could just see him, that, that would be enough for us. Can you just show us You can hear the heart behind Philip's question. He's saying, we just want to know what he's like. Can you show us? It it literally says, could you just show us? That would be enough for us. Listen to Jesus' shocking response. Philip, have you been with me this long and still you don't know? If you've seen me, you've seen God. The shocking realization of the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ is this. We don't ever have to wonder anymore what God is like. Colossians 1.15 says this, he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, if you wanna know what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you wanna know what kind of power God has, watch what he can do. If you wanna know what God thinks about life, listen to what Jesus says. And if you wanna know how God feels about people, how he feels about you and me, then just watch how he treats them. He is, Hebrews 1 3, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen God. And it's just not what anyone thought was coming. You know, maybe they thought he would be like the religious leaders, he was nothing like them. He was nothing like them. In in fact, they could not stand him. They were his greatest adversary. They had a nickname for Jesus. They called him friend of sinners. They meant it as an insult. But I like to think he wore that like a badge. See, He was the broken, outcast, sinner that felt so loved, embraced, and accepted by Jesus. He He was anything but Religious. You know, maybe maybe they expected this judge that would come and make sure that everybody obeyed. Which means they probably would not have seen it coming when in John chapter 2, he creates more wine so the party can keep going. I'm not suggesting that Jesus advocates drunkenness, but what I am saying is that a God that was primarily concerned about rules probably would not have done that. Maybe he cared more about relationships than he did about rules. I worked with high school kids for nearly two decades, still work with our youth here at CHS. And it's been my experience that most kids have this image or picture of Jesus that he was boring, irrelevant. But Jesus started a revolution. I mean, when he would go places before social media, no announcement, no flyers, he would just show up. Thousands would come to listen. Boring people don't draw crowds. I bet he was funny. I bet he had a great sense of humor. I bet that when he started talking, people just kind of scooched to the edge of their seat to hear what he had to say. They didn't want to miss it. And by the way, don't confuse Jesus' gentleness for weakness. Jesus was strong. He would flip over the tables in the temple when he saw injustice. And he called it my house. Jesus Said to the wind and the waves, shh, be quiet. And it listened. Jesus never backed down from an argument. He was always uh, under attack by the religious authorities. He always stood up for the little guy, like the woman caught in adultery, even when it cost him his own reputation. Jesus was a strong leader, but he was gentle too. Remember the disciples tried to keep the little kids from coming to Jesus. And uh, they thought he wouldn't have time. He said, let them come. They climbed up in his lap. He was strong, but he was gentle. He was busy, but never in a hurry. He was popular. He was comfortable with the spotlight, but he didn't need it. He never let it go to his head. Surrounded by crowds of people, but he always saw the individual. He was perfect. You know, we, we use that word perfect to describe Jesus often. And usually when we do it, we're talking about his moral record. He observed God's law perfectly, and that is true. But have you ever considered that he was humanity perfected? I mean, he was was God's perfect display of what we all wish we could be. The perfect blend of power and peace, of boldness and humility, of truth and grace. He was perfect. There's a verse in Isaiah 53 that suggests that Jesus wasn't that much to look at. He wasn't handsome, but he was beautiful. He was so attractive. If he, he was here today, we would find ourselves irresistibly drawn to his presence. That is the nature of our king. No, that's the character. His nature is that he's God. His character is he's perfect. But now let's take a look and answer this question. What does that have to do with you and me? What are the implications of his authority, of his kingship in our life? When he came to town that day, it was a line in the sand moment. See, when you come into town and say, I am the king of all creation, it changes the conversation a little bit. See, he puts everybody there to a decision. You can't hear that and be neutral anymore. Either you submit and bow to his authority that he claims to have, or you resist his authority and you become his enemy. But you can't just be in the middle. It's very polarizing what he said. Tim Keller puts it this way. Uh, He said, when Jesus comes into town, it's as if he's saying, you can crown me or you can kill me, but you can't just like me. What's interesting is the people that day that were shouting, Hosanna, save us. A few days later, as we all know, they were the same crowd that would be shouting, crucify him. It's a chilling display of the fickleness of humanity. The question is, why the sudden change? Like, how did they flip-flop so quickly? And the answer to that question is this. When Jesus came into town that day and they said, save us, what they meant by that was save us from Rome. Deliver us from the oppressive government. Save us on our terms. Save us in the way that we want to be saved from what we think we need to be saved from. And Jesus did not come to save them from Rome. See, in the same way that Jesus looks at that paralyzed man, looks past his paralyzed legs and looks into his heart and deals with the silent, invisible problem, his sin, Jesus comes into Rome or into Jerusalem that day, not to deal with Rome, but to deal with the unseen enemy, the greater enemy. He came to deal with sin and death. And when they realized that he's not going to deliver us from Rome, it was easy for them to go, crucify him. He's not who we thought. And this is what it means to come under his authority. This is what it means to trust him. Because Jesus came to give them not what they wanted, but what they needed. Not delivered from Rome, but from sin. And the same is true for you and me. We come and we trust him. Even when it doesn't make sense to us. Even when it hurts. Even when we look at our life and we're like, this is not how I think it should be happening. We trust him. I didn't plan to say this, but Dan and Nancy, sitting in front of you and listening to you worship on the heels of what you're going through, it is, it is a picture to me of what it looks like to trust when it's not panned out the way you thought it should. Joel and Aunt Claire, the same could be said of you. We trust him. You know, um, Tim Keller, this is one of my all-time favorite quotes. He says that what we find when we trust him is that Jesus is giving us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knows. You know, if, if we had his perspective, that he's giving us what we would have asked for, and that's so hard to imagine and understand, but what we can do is trust the character of our king We can trust him. But can I tell you another reason that we can trust him? It will cost us to acknowledge his authority. And the question, by the way, is not, is he the king? He's the king. The question is, will we submit to his authority? It will cost us to trust him. It will hurt sometimes. But can I tell you something? It cost him more to become our king. When he came into Jerusalem that day, he would have gone through the eastern gate. Do you know what that gate was called? The sheep's gate. It's the gate that all the sheep would have come through to be prepared for temple sacrifice. And when they walked through that gate, their fate was sealed, their destiny secured. They would not come back. They were gonna be put to death. And here comes Jesus walking through the same gate. And when he rode into town through that gate, Jesus became the fulfillment of which every Passover lamb that went before him was merely a symbol. They all pointed to the perfect Passover lamb that one day would come. The lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus came to take away our sin can we trust a king like that we can trust him we can trust him in fact in Romans eight thirty two, listen to how Paul says it he meaning God who did not even spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also along with him give us all things what's the logic of Paul Man, if he gave us his son, we can trust him with everything else. What am I battling right now in my life? Does it seem upside down, backwards? Does it make no sense to me? Do we think it should not have panned out this way? We look back to the cross and we say, his heart is good. His heart is for me. We can trust the king. See, Jesus... Jesus died. He took the death that you and I deserve so that we could get the inheritance that he deserved. We can trust him. This is our king. This is the nature of our king. He's God in the character of our king. He is perfect. And he's the perfect king who died that we might know him. You can trust him. Let's pray. And as always, as we pray, these curved rails in front of me are for you to come and interact with God in whatever way He's moving in your heart. Don't miss this opportunity. Maybe you have been resisting His authority like a a baby cult, unbroken, untrained. Maybe today you would come (laughs) like the master sitting on his back and you would just say, I'm done fighting. I trust you. You can be trusted. Maybe there's some here today who have never trusted Christ. You realize that you've been on the wrong side of that line in the sand. Maybe you've been trying to be saved on your own terms, looking for God to be more like a genie in a bottle than a king who comes gentle. He's ready to forgive. He's also the king that says, come to me all you who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest for I am gentle and lowly of heart. The straight rails over here, we have people that would love to pray with you and it would be our sincere hope and desire today that you might find new faith in Christ today. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.